Listen in with me as I share the story Jeremy Painter shared with me. You may remember your first dog. I remember mine. She died a week before Easter, and on Easter I asked my Sunday school teacher if I would see her in heaven. The teacher wrinkled her brow and got that look in her eyes like she was gazing out beyond the stars. And from such heights she offered the following highly sophisticated theological pronouncement. She said, Probably not. Why? I asked. Dogs aren't people, she said. So? I answered. What's that matter? Well, she said, dogs don't have souls. Why don't they have souls? I demanded. That's a pretty big oversight, I was thinking. Have you ever seen my dog? She had paws instead of feet and floppy ears and a tail, and she ran fast, and she licks you, and she knows her name, and she smiles. Why why didn't they get souls? I kept asking these questions, and finally the teacher said, That's just the way it is. I remember being both impressed and horrified with the world at this revelation. Later in life, I found myself strangely in awe of the indifference the universe seemed to show toward our sorrows. For instance, my grandmother died, and I thought if the world should ever stop for just a moment to observe anyone's death, it should have been hers. But the world didn't. In my view, there should have been an eclipse of the sun. The stars should have sung a requiem. The trees should have bowed low in the wind. The tides should have reversed their course. And if the natural world should have to go on without attending to this sorrow, at least the human world could memorialize her. A newspaper headline, a documentary, a book of her life and times, flags at half-mast. But it turned out none of this happened. Even her own hometown newspaper, having perhaps a mere 100 subscribers, barely recorded her death. A 50-word obituary on the back page, next to a large ad for a hardware store. That was all the testimony given for a woman who lived through the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, World War II, the Korean conflict, and the Vietnam War. She gave birth to seven upstanding citizens, was married 60 years, kept her faith, and fought the good fight for nine decades. That's just the way it is, I could hear my old Sunday school teacher say. That's just the way it is. The course of the world seems to move forward with little regard for our lives. The biblical record, however, testifies of a Messiah who did not simply accept the course of this world When he came across things that seemed to be inherently indifferent and unchangeable, he changed them. From the very beginning of the gospel story, God turned back the normal course of the world. An old couple miraculously conceived a child, and a virgin brought forth the Christ. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. It's so good to have you here. We are taking a look at a lesson dated October 10th, 2021, and it is on this companion podcast. So if you have your student guide, please turn there. Lesson again, October 10th, 2021. It's entitled, What God Says is True. And we are focusing our attention on Luke chapter 1, 
verses 18 through 20. So if you do have your companion student guide, please open that up. Follow along with me. Or if you are just listening or you have the scriptures with you, we're going to open up to Luke 1, verses 18 through 20. Verse 18, And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and I am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not be able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season." We're taking a look at a brand new series called A Voice in the Wilderness, which is going to span from the birth of John the Baptist all the way to that pivotal moment when John baptized Jesus, fulfilling that beautiful prophecy that a voice in the wilderness would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And certainly that voice came and he prepared the way through John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel prophesied that Zechariah's son, John, would go before the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was the prophecy in Luke 1 verse 17. And when John came of age, he was found in the wilderness. He wore strange clothes, he ate strange food, he wore camel's hair, ate locusts and honey, but he was coming in the power of God, and the word of God came to him in the wilderness. It was this place of trial and testing, but it was also traditionally the place where the word of the Lord was delivered to God's special messengers. Take a look at Moses in Exodus 3 and Elijah in 1 Kings 19. It is important that John received God's word in the wilderness and he preached repentance there. Now, in what ways did John prepare the way for the Lord to come? Certainly only God knows the future. So when somebody prophesies of future reality, it becomes evident if God has really spoken to that person because if it comes to pass, great. If not, well, either he didn't speak or the timing is a little off. But those who hear the prophet will know that the prophet is true and tells the truth and that God is orchestrating these events according to his will. So what God did for John had to be a miracle, and it was. Zechariah was John the Baptist's dad. Elizabeth was his mom. Both of them were long past childbearing age. So when the angel spoke to Zechariah, of course, Zechariah asked the question, wait, wait, wait a minute, Mr. Angel in shining white raiment. I'm an old man. My wife is well stricken in years. It was nice that he didn't call her old. Indeed, the, the course of this world often militates against the solutions to our problems, which is why God's promises are often hidden somewhere inside the impossible. Has God ever made a promise to you that seemed to be impossible? Well, if so, you just know that he is certainly able to do the impossible. When Zechariah did not believe, the angel charged him with unbelief. And like Zechariah, we learn the ways of the world and we put some more stock in the rules than we do in the one who created them, the creator. We tend to cling to the way things have always been instead of holding to the hope that the Almighty really does hold the future in his hands. If we could go back to the time of Christ, we would hear voices struggling to cope with the same perception of this universal indifference. And from it, a whole philosophy was born especially from one man just trying to reckon with the idea that 
That's just the way it is. These philosophers were called Stoics. Their answer to the problem was to understand the world works in a certain way, and the sooner we acknowledge it and go along with it and accept it, well, just the better off we'll be. Don't get so wrapped up trying to change unchangeable things. They would say they they would tell you to calm down, accept it, do the best you can, play the hand nature gave you. That's where you find peace and maybe even joy. But it's ironic that these philosophers were named after the Stoa, or the porches under which they sought respite from that hot Mediterranean sun. And their ideas were essentially a quest for solace, a place to hide from this withering indifference of the world. If they were escapists, it was a very strong and noble escapism, but it it seems the Stoic answers to the mysteries of life bear a suspicious resemblance to the five stages of grief. When I mentioned acceptance a bit ago, you might have thought, "Hmm, that sounds familiar. These five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, there it is, acceptance. So that's it. Could it be that this noble stoicism of the past and present is little more than grief masquerading in the philosopher's mask? Has the human race really gone through eons of struggle wrestling in mortal combat with reality only to arrive finally back at the Stoics whose only battlefield was the mind and whose only answer was to shrug your shoulders and say, that's just the way it is. This philosophy, it's been kept alive, and some have even managed to make it seem beautiful. The 18th century poet Alexander Pope gave advice in the form of poetry when he wrote, All nature is art unknown to thee, all chance direction which thou canst not see, all discord harmony not understood, all partial evil universal good. In spite of pride and erring, reason's spite, one truth is clear, whatever is, is right. If you've ever wanted to hear a beautiful lie, there it is. It is a lie played on a golden harp. But if you strip these words of their poetry, you would know you're staring in the darkest eyes, eyes that see suffering and discord, but a mouth that says, it's not discord, it's just harmony misunderstood. They're they're not really weeds, they're roses by another name. A century ago, George Bernard Shaw said that the reasonable man looks out upon the world and adapts himself to it while the unreasonable man looks out upon the same world, but expects it to adapt itself to him. This worldview is still very much alive today, this stoic worldview. Much of the self-help industry and tele-evangelism, it consists of this warmed-over, microwaved, reheated stoicism. Underneath this hollow and heartless wisdom, here's the message. The whole task in life is not fixing problems in the world. It is adapting to the world. But the Bible points us in a different direction. We have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And the New Testament story begins as God changes the status quo. Why do you think God likes to change the status quo? Well, back to our story. The angel gave proof of the truth of God's word by silencing the priest. In part, this involuntary silence was an echo of the silence of prophecy during those so-called silent years or intertestamental period that divided Malachi from Matthew, which began during the generation of Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, who happened to have the same name as Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. And it ended, the silence did, with a voice of John the Baptist. 
The voice of divine prophecy returned with the birth of John. In the process, Zechariah learned God's word can be trusted regardless of the way things seem to work. So with all these illustrations and stories and examples and testimonies, why do we still sometimes struggle to take God at his word? We hear the story in the New Testament, the story of John the Baptist, the story of Jesus. Hearing the story is so refreshing. Jesus consistently insisted God's word is final. The course of the world is subject to God's plan, not the other way around. For instance, Jesus once walked up to a tree in early spring expecting to find fruit long before it would have been able to bear fruit. And not only did he expect fruit to be there for the picking in late March, but five months or so before harvest, but when he saw leaves and no fruit, he expressed frustration and cursed the tree. His 12 disciples were with him. Could this have been the moment Judas felt somewhat justified in what he was thinking? We know the disciples were all thrown off by Jesus' behavior because the record of the event reverted to a kind of respectful understatement. After Jesus cursed the tree, the text simply says, and his disciples heard him say it. Mark 11, verse 14. It's a redundancy, as if to say, well, if we hadn't heard it with our own ears. How could you expect a tree to yield fruit in March, Jesus? It's like blaming water for being wet or fire for being hot, but his disciples heard him say it. Cursing the fig tree is akin to cursing two and two for making four. It's natural, but his disciples heard him say it. But is this not the sort of Jesus of Nazareth behavior that the gospel writers unanimously testified to? The Jesus they followed did not look at a human need and say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. The reasonable person says, I cannot fix this problem. It's too big. But I can fix my attitude toward the problem. The problem is the constant. My attitude is the variable, not Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was not a Stoic who learned compliance to the inevitable. He did not try to make peace with the world. He came to bring peace. He came to bring his own peace. All the evangelists in their own ways told of the kind of man who once compared a mountain and a mustard seed and said the seed was bigger. That may sound eccentric, but his disciples heard him say it. How about the law of the Hebrew elders? You have heard it said by those of old, but I, Jesus, say unto you. Here's another one. Master, there are only five loaves and two fishes, but a great multitude to feed. But his disciples heard him say it. Give them to eat. They have no wine. But his disciples heard him say, fill the water pots to the brim. Hosanna, the people cried. But the Pharisees said, Master, rebuke these disciples. And Jesus answered, if they don't sing, the rocks will. And again, this may seem unreasonable, but his disciples heard him say it. Come on, Lord. You know how it works. Lazarus has been dead four days. He's rotting by now. We know he's not going to smell good. But Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus and his disciples heard him say it. The truth is, the strange occurrence at this fig tree, it's just a microcosm of the entire incarnation. Human sin required the blood of God. And somewhere in the quietude of eternity, the laws of reason, the laws of it, said God had no blood to shed. So God looked at reason, we can imagine, the same way he looked at the fig tree. And the next thing you know, the apostle heard the Spirit say, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he, God, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Wow. When heaven saw what it would take, what it would cost to save a single human being, a shudder must have shaken the stars. To speak in human terms, there must have been what we might call sticker shock to see the cost to purchase a church. It would not cost heaven part of its savings account or part of its retirement. Our salvation would not require heaven to sell its best properties and mansions. The price heaven would have to pay was no less than the greatest treasure of heaven. In fact, it would cost heaven, heaven itself. The price of our redemption was the treasure of the ages, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Rock of Ages, the Good Shepherd, the Alpha and Omega, the price tag for our salvation, said the Son of God. If you think you're worthless, if you think you have no value, hear this. God spared nothing to save you. He held not one thing back. He emptied and bankrupted heaven to save you. And do you think such love, such profound expense of God's Spirit could be daunted by your flaws, by your faults, your shortcomings, your habits, your hurts, your hang-ups? Do you think heaven could go to such great lengths to save you only to be confronted by your sin and say, well, I guess that's just the way she is? Do you think such grace could ever be so easily defeated? Let me ask you this. How would you describe God's love to somebody who has never experienced it? Let's wrap this up. And so it was as the sun was going down behind the everlasting hills of Jerusalem. The story of Exodus could be heard behind every door. Children could almost feel the shadow of the death angel passing through the streets. Fathers were tearing loaves of bread, dipping the pieces in bitter spices and passing them around the table. The city's leaders were planning an illegal trial. False witnesses were receiving summons, and the servant of the high priest was waiting for Judas. Jesus' disciples, their feet still drying, gathered pensively around their master, and God's own enemy felt so close to having a world left just the way it is. But our Lord was planning another exodus right under the enemy's nose. Just hours before sweating blood and laying aside his own will, and while the olive trees trembled in the winds of the infinite, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Mark 14, verses 22 to 24. Now that we have been redeemed by his blood, we cannot simply make peace with the way things are in the world. We have been called out of that kind of darkness into a marvelous light. We don't conform to the world. Our faith might not seem to work in theory, but it works in practice. We look at a cross and insist it is the throne of God. We look at the crown of thorns and call it a crown of glory. Like our Lord, we never take the world at face value. We shake our fists at the spiritual desert and demand it rain. We look at the houses of prostitutes, the broken, the addicts, and insist they are to be houses of the redeemed. We look out upon whole continents in the grip of Satan and declare them one for Christ. 
to all of life's heartaches, it might be tempting to say, that's just the way it is. But if you listen closely, you will hear another it. For on a dark, skull-shaped hill many years ago, the earth shook, Christ died, and his disciples heard him say it. It is finished. What a beautiful gospel we are blessed to share. Let's pray right now that the Lord would help us to draw closer to him. Let's pray that we would see things the way they are and pray for God to change them to the way he wants them to be. If you're struggling with your faith, I want to pray that God would help you to see he is so much greater than all of your struggles, all of your doubts, and he wants to do what he wants to do in your life, if you'll let him. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you that I don't have to accept things just the way they are. You can change them. I don't have to accept brokenness and pain and hurt and heartache and heartbreak. You can change it all. I thank you, God. You're in control of it all. You're the Almighty. You're the Creator, the Author, the Finisher of our faith. I ask you to increase our faith today. Help us to see you as you really are, Jesus. Help us to put all of our faith, all of our trust in you, to know you can change everything, everywhere, in any way you want to. I pray, God, for anybody listening whose faith is flagging and and waning. God, give them strength today. Increase their faith. Help them to see you want to do so much more in their life than what we have already seen. I pray today, help us to share this glorious gospel with others. Thank you for the price you paid for us to redeem us, to purchase us from sin. Thank you, Jesus, for everything you have done for us. We love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things and give thanks to you for all of them. In Jesus' name, amen. What a gospel. What a God. Share it with somebody if you have not yet already Click subscribe, please do so on this podcast so you'll know every time a new episode drops. And be sure to share this with somebody who may be struggling a little bit with their self-worth or their value, their self-esteem. Let them hear the words of the gospel that Jesus Christ, God himself, came in flesh to save us and purchase us. He, He loves us and values us that much. I do hope this episode's been a help and blessing to you. I want to say thank you to all those who stopped me this past week in Indianapolis at General Conference and let me know that they are enjoying and being blessed by this podcast. Special thanks to all of our writers who write this content for all of our Sunday lessons and then allow this content to be shared over the course of the next week with all of our podcast listeners. Thank you so much. If you want more information or more resources with God's Word for Life, Visit godswordforlife.faith and you'll certainly find more there to help you in your walk with God and in your discipleship. Next week, we're going to take a look at another miraculous birth. We're going to take a look at the lesson that is dated October 17th, 2021, titled For His Purpose. And it is the lesson and it is the message of the time Gabriel spoke to Mary and let her know you are going to conceive and he is going to be called the Son of God. That's a beautiful story, and we're going to share that with you next week. I'm looking forward to that, and always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast 
And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.